welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday Show with Mike Guardia, award-winning author and historian. So Happy New Year, everybody, and Happy 2024. Happy New Year, Mike. It is good to have you back on the show. Are you ready for another year of military history? I'm sure you yes, are. Yes, ma'am, and, and oh, always good to see you, Lisa. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Hey, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk, well, you know, we're going to talk about uh, January 1966 uh, Vietnam military history. Because, of course, today this is airing on January 1st. Um, but we're going to look at January, go, wind it back to 1966 and talk about some of the events that happened early in the month of January back in 1966. And I think this ties back to your latest book that is out now, which is Fire in the Hole. Tales of Combat with the 1st Engineer Battalion in Vietnam. Uh, so it does tie into that, doesn't it? This yes, history. ma'am, sure does. Yeah, I was reading about this history. So this is, and everyone, that book, Fire in the Hole, is out now. It came out in December. It is ready for you to read, whether you get it on Kindle or hardback. Uh, go check it out. Go to um, Amazon.com and get it there. Or I've got the links in the show notes or just go to MikeGuardia.com and click on his Amazon link from there and get it. And um, I love it because you really, you know, we talked about this last month about the combat engineers. And today I know we're going to be talking about Operation Crimp. And I don't think this operation would have happened without the combat engineers, right? That's right. Yeah, the the combat engineers they really played a critical role in uh, you know how that uh, how that whole operation unfolded, especially since uh, you know you had uh, you had a lot of you had a lot of organic engineer missions happening to uh, expose and secure the the entire Viet Cong tunnel network that was in that area. Mm. And with this area, so this was kind of like in in South Vietnam, right? Um, Kind of is it? This is by Saigon. Am I getting my mapping right here? So we're near Saigon, where this operation yeah, it, had happened. It, right, right. It's not too far away from where, where Saigon was. And um, yeah, if we wind the clocks back to January of '66, we're looking uh, specifically at the uh, 8th of January until the 14th of January, and um, really uh, the. Center mass of the operation um, happened in a, ha- happened really in a place that was about 12 miles north of Kuchi, and uh, it was uh, it was a critical operation for us at the time because that was one of the big Viet Cong headquarters, and uh, you know we had to uh, we we knew that uh, we knew that the enemy was elusive and we knew that they were making uh, some use of uh, some use of these underground networks, but we didn't know. Just how uh, how sophisticated they were, and uh, how deep they ran. And one of the things that uh, was a big yield for us in Operation Crimp was not only discovering uh, not only discovering one of the biggest networks of these underground tunnels that the that the Viet Cong had uh, that not only they had built and built upon, but it also uh, was an incredible intelligence bonanza for the U.S. because it gave. Uh, it gave a lot of actionable intelligence to include, you know, names of rosters and, uh, you know, and 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 a lot of we- and a lot of locations of weapon caches, things that uh, dealt a very heavy blow to the Viet Cong operations in that part of South Vietnam very early in the war. 
So this, when this happened, Operation Crimp, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and you, you know, we touched on this um, last month, and actually I don't know if it was on air or us chatting, but it was when Australian troops worked with the U.S., and that's something you really rarely hear about Australia being part of Vietnam on on the U.S. side of things. Now, when, when the, you know, growing up in South Africa, we always hear, heard what the Australians did, you know, because they were so close. But um, this is something unique for folks to kind of realize how America worked with Australia on this. Right. You know, I think that it, it's something that doesn't get a lot of press coverage, you know, even in a lot of the popular histories of the conflict. Uh, you know, people seem to forget that that the war in Vietnam was not just an America going it alone operation. It really was an allied effort. In fact, if you look through a lot of the uh, a lot of the old press releases and a lot of the uh, stories that were circulating um, about the Vietnam War during its early years, you constantly hear um, you know you constantly hear all of these references to allied forces. Allied forces did this. There was an Allied patrol that uncovered this. You know, very rarely was it was it just characterized as a as a U.S. patrol. It was very rarely characterized as U.S. forces are are doing whatever. And people forget that not only was it the Americans who were in Vietnam, but you also had Australians. You also had uh, you also had uh, uh, South Korean troops there. You had uh, many of um, many of our former wartime partners from World War II and Korea who were there side by side. Of course, not in as great of numbers as we were, but uh, you made very significant contributions to the war effort as a whole. And uh, in particular, for Operation Crimp, you had the First uh, Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, who uh, you know many of the uh, many of the American veterans who served uh, alongside these uh, Australians. They say, really, these guys were on par with our own special forces. You know that they were that they were very tough. They were very resilient, and uh, they embodied almost every popular stereotype that you hear about Australians. You know, uh, <laughs> some of them have looked back and said, you know, try to imagine Crocodile Dundee in uniform, you know, going off in the jungle to uh, to fight the Viet Cong, and that's pretty much the situation that you had. Well, let's talk about these tunnels because that you know the Vietnam War was. Insane because, you know, you even think about World War One, then going to World War Two, there was a Korean War and then here we go. And Vietnam seems so, um, so like in World War Two, we, we had like the Japanese that were like, you did not want to be caught, <laughs> you know, right? It was the Japanese were not cool and, and certain parts of you did not want to be a POW at that point. Um, mm-hmm. but then when you get to Vietnam, it seemed like, that kind of thing could happen too if you were a POW, a prisoner of war um, for the Viet Cong. Couldn't you? That could be pretty brutal. But they also understood their jungle, you know, better than what Americans would kind of know. I mean, unless you came from Louisiana or from you know Crocodile Dundee land in Australia, they were mm-hmm. pretty sneaky. From what I, I don't. From what I know, and that that's little. Um, but they seem very sneaky and understanding their terrain, which is, you know, like a whole, it's a different world. Right. And so doing these tunnels, that was something unique to be able to find these tunnels and, you know, get all the ammunitions. And, and, and I think they even found like hordes of rice so they could actually for the, for us and Australian troops, they could get some extra food there. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was. Um, it was. It was really quite an impressive discovery, as uh, as far as Allied forces were concerned, because uh, they didn't really know the extent of these tunnels and how far they went, and just really how elaborate they were. And you know, in the course of uh, in course of, in the course of exploring all of these uh, tunnel networks, especially in Kuchi, they found okay, well, some of these have been recently built, but a lot of them are extensions of tunnels that were built from previous conflicts, you know, uh, for, oh. for instance, you know, th- things that were uh, put in place when, when the Vietnamese were fighting the French and even fighting the Chinese. So they said that, uh, they said that the tunnels themselves were very well done. And, uh, and surprisingly enough, they were, they were very w- w- well ventilated, but life in the tunnels really wasn't all that great. You know, um, for for the Viet Cong, you know they uh, you know they had to uh, they had to often they often had to live with um, they have to live with all of the uh, all of the creepy crawlers that you would expect to see down in subterranean levels and many of these tunnels were infested with ants you know you'd have uh, have uh, insects like venomous centipedes snakes spiders all different all different kinds of rodents. Um, you know, most Ew. of the uh, so, most yeah, most of the Viet Cong soldiers <laughs> they Ew. would spend the day no. in the tunnels working or resting, and then they would come out at night to uh, scavenge supplies or tend to crops or you know try to uh, try to take out uh, try to take out as many um, uh, uh, Americans on a nighttime patrol as they could. And uh, yeah, so you really had uh, you really had a lot of uh, of Viet Cong soldiers who were um, who were swapping their days and nights. They were essentially becoming these uh these night shift ambush soldiers wow wow and they that couldn't have been easy for them either on the other side to be doing that mm-hmm. you're, you're burning the candle at both ends and it's traumatic and that that can't be easy but then you know here's the your opposing side american uh, and um, and australia you know hey we're going to go in here and do something new and i was meaning that you know there were um five U.S. soldiers that were called the Black Lions that were killed um, going into the tunnels. Um, the Black Lions. I don't know how they get their names, but um, they, they were listed on a site. I was reading about this, and it was interesting because it seemed that they the Viet Cong had snipers. So as they were uh, – just tell me if I'm getting this right or wrong. So, like, as, as you know, our troops, American and Australia, are finding these tunnels – the Viet Cong had snipers, like pick them out as they were going in. Is that, is that, am I getting the right picture on that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Viet Cong, they had snipers everywhere. They had a sniper. They, they also had a, they also had um, a, uh, an early incarnation of IED bombers and, and uh, roadside bomb triggermen. Oh, wow. So that would be like your, your mines, your landmines. Um, yeah, they're yeah, going to exactly. go off as you go through. Wow. I can't, I, I, listen, Mike, I still can't get over that story you told us that's in, in your book. Um, you fire in the hole. I was telling Nancy, I'm like, dude, you got to finish this book because this is insane. The story about the, the gentleman with, you know, getting his leg blown off and then still going for a cigarette through the, the mines, you know, the explosives, like I'm going to turn around and go back where things are blowing up just to finish my cigarette. 
Like, I still can't get past that story. People, you got to read Fire in the Hole. This is insane stuff, man. I'm still, I'm, I can't get past that. Have you been able to get past that story yet? And like, figure it out. It's just still blowing my mind. And you're reading about all, and you read this history of Vietnam. I mean, it's, it just seems such a difficult war. And, And like, when you're talking about, you know, rodents and ants, and ants hurt, man. I know about being, I know, I know about ant bites, man. They are not funny and you can get infected with ant bites mm-hmm. pretty easy just from yeah. scratching and but when things go bump in the dark like come on that's kind of you could blow stuff up just because of that you know it's just mm-hmm. like what was that boom <laughs> do you know what i mean so i wonder like how much of that happened too in in the war in vietnam where it, you know just just out of like what the hell was that you know that things would go off you know because of things you're not used to or bugs and rodents and snakes and you hear something and then you just shoot, you know, cause that's pretty much your instinct, right. To just do that. Do, do you think that happened a lot? I mean, that's going to be a usual for war, right. Is just blow it up if you don't oh. know. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, um, it was, was especially traumatic for, for the soldiers who were over there, especially during those first few years of the combat mission, because they really didn't know exactly what the enemy was doing from one day to the next, and uh, they knew that uh, they knew that they would uh, they they knew that they would use the night to their advantage, especially to uh, try to make diversions and try to emulate sounds of the local wildlife to uh, you know try to uh, to try to trick. To, uh, to to try to trick the Americans the best they could, try to psych them out, and uh, yeah, it gets it gets tough because you don't know uh, which which things that are going bump in the night belong to the enemy and which one of them belong to Mother Nature. It mm. uh, it it, uh, it it does lend itself to a lot of hey, if something moves or if it's making more noise than you think it should, yeah, you go ahead and shoot at it. And um, there's a uh, there is a story that kind of dovetails into that. Actually, two stories. Um, one, which was early on in the deployment for Charlie Company, when they were over there, and uh, they would um, they would have these uh, probes from the Viet Cong throughout the night along the perimeter, and you know it was it was it was a uh, situation where. If uh, they had a lot of movement, or if they had a lot of noise coming from one particular side of the perimeter, they would uh, they would open <laughs> they would open fire with every available weapon that was on that side. They would fire into the darkness until the uh, and, and t- until the noise is stopped. Wow. And uh, then other times they would go out on an ambush patrol. And uh, well, I say ambush patrol. It was really more uh, uh, it. it was really more of an observation post and a listening post where they would, you know, send out a squad of uh, troops to occupy a certain uh, piece of high ground and they would just sit there and listen and lie in wait and see if uh, they could draw any any kind of enemy fire. And, you know, and some nights you would go 6, 12 hours and you wouldn't hear anything, you wouldn't have any enemy contact and then you would just go back your home base but then other times you would get enemy contact and you know even if you would go hours without making any um you know any positive identification of the enemy 
you know, when you would, when you would exfil from wherever your OP was, you would throw out a few hand grenades and you would fire off a few, uh, you, know, you would fire off a uh, few bullets into the darkness of the night just to try to, um, you know, kill or throw off anything that might be following you. Wow. Wow. Well, you got to do what you got to do, you know? Um, exactly. But I just think, like, Vietnam's creepy. There's a creepiness to it. I mean, I know people have to vacation in those areas and everything, but there's a a war creepiness to it, like, where you just don't know what's coming out. Because it is swampy, you know? It's tropical, and mm-hmm. you don't know. And you And like you were saying, you know, on the last show about Vietnam is, like, the soldiers thought they could trust certain women or people and then they would turn around and turn on them. So, mm-hmm. you know, that could, could that lead to a sniper knowing where you are, you know, as, as a soldier, uh-huh. an, an American Australian soldier that maybe you met some girl or something, everything's, you know, woohoo. And then next thing you know, like that led to a sniper attack on you or a yeah. different. Wow. Well, yeah, you know, if um, yeah, if, if any any number of the South Vietnamese call girls were on the Viet Cong payroll, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of them would would uh, would go out to uh, to any of the local GI bars or any of the uh, any of the places that uh, that American troops were known to frequent or known to patrol through. Yeah, you know, they would uh, they would just go out and act all friendly, act all coquettish, and you know, maybe uh, within the course of uh, within the course of any any number of liaisons or you know just any friendly conversations, you know that would be a, that would be a ripe opportunity for a suicide bomber to make his move, or you know for a sniper to set up a position and you know just uh, just just take any uh, take any um, uh, targets of opportunity he could. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, I was reading about the 28th Infantry Regiment, the Black Lions that were killed. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When they were searching for, for, you know, the tunnels, I was like realizing like we've been to these places where they are from and they are listed in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in D.C. You know, and you see all these names when you go to a memorial, but you really don't know what they did sometimes, you know, and I, and I, appreciate the memorials for sure but when you start to kind of have that you think about someone coming from like overland park kansas which we've been to every year so far you know over the years here you know part of kansas city and then milwaukee wisconsin and you start to look at where these you know uh lafayette georgia um when you start to know these areas then you start to think like that. You just went through night and day territory. I mean, mm-hmm. that's to me amazing. I don't think Milwaukee looks like Vietnam, you know? So you, you've got to think in how young he was 18 years old. Uh, Michael P. Moran, a private first class at, at, that passed, you know, it's like that was young, 18 years old to be sent over there. I was a brat mm-hmm. when I was 18. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know, you got to think. I mean, there were uh, two of them were eighteen. One was thirty-three from South Dakota, thirty-four Warren, Michigan. I mean, these these were all young men in the line of fire, and yet 
you know, this was going beyond playing military games at home, you know? Um, I don't even think we had, you know, video games right back then, right? We didn't, you know, very much, you know? So this was like a whole other world and reality. And that's what I want people to understand. These are young guys that went out there, uh, whether drafted or putting themselves out there on the line. And I mean, that, how, how did we help them get prepared for this war? Do you think for, from the American side, not just for Operation Crimp, but were we prepared? Was the U.S. military ready for this war? I mean, are we ever ready for wars? Like, you know, we can look ahead as much as we can now, especially it's a little easier, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But for Vietnam, was this like a big, uh oh, we don't know what the hell we're doing, but we need to go in when when we did? Well, it, well from a tactical standpoint, I think our troops were about as well prepared as they could have been. And I also think that, uh, I think that tactically speaking, we actually had the edge over the Viet Cong, uh, because when I was speaking to a lot of the veterans who had deployed with Charlie Company, they were very quick to tell me that, uh, they got a crash course on, on the culture and the language of Vietnam, that they, uh, that they were pretty well versed in, in, uh, in the, in the language and the customs. They generally knew the history of how the Viet Cong came to be and what they could expect as far as the, as far as their fighting tactics and also the tactics of the NVA, uh, because a lot of it was drawn and inspired from the latter-day Soviet tactics, which a lot of us uh, already knew a lot about at that point. Um, so I think tactically speaking, we were in as good of shape as we could be. I think where we went wrong was just not having a clear understanding of what the strategic outcome was going to be. Because if you look at the battlefield performance of, you know, how we did in Vietnam, even mm -hmm. during some of the qualitatively worst years of the conflict, you know, you, you look at the, uh, if you look at the body counts and you just look at how we conducted ourselves in the field, there's no question at all that we won every battle. And, you know, we, we mopped up about 2 million, uh, we mopped up about 2 million North Vietnamese in total. And we did this at a, at a comparatively low cost of 58,000 men. Not that that's a trivial number, but if you just look at, uh, if you just look at the kill loss ratio, there's no question at all, really, that we came out on top. But, because we didn't have a clear strategic picture in mind, and we left the uh, we left the latter day um, peace establishment and the you know cyclic security enforcement to the South Vietnamese Army, they weren't really in a position to where they could handle that level of responsibility themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. To say nothing of the fact that you had several parts of the South Vietnamese military structure that were. Uh, unabashedly corrupt and um, not very tactically competent in what they were supposed to do and just not really motivated mm. or a lack of a better term. And, you know, when you take those things together, those latter things that I mentioned, you know, the uh, unclear strategic parameters, the, um, the, uh, the hamstringing of, um, of, of, of all of these personnel and HR policies, 
yeah, it's going to make for uh, it's going to make for an army that uh, can perform very well in the field, but uh, is really just spinning its wheels because there's no long-term picture in sight and no way to secure the peace long-term after you win it. Mm. Wow. Well, it's it's important for people to realize all that, you know, to understand. And that that's that's the thing. I mean, for you going in and and you know, interviewing these veterans from Charlie Company. For you, did you learn more than what you do in research from reading than when you're actually oh, talking yeah. to veterans? You start to have a deeper knowledge, you know, about what is or isn't. What what we all sit and watch on TV or headlines and, and do just generally as human beings isn't necessarily, you know, what we think is happening is not necessarily always the truth, right? Until you talk to those who are actually there personally, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really what you is. deliver no, in your I- books. Yeah. Yeah. I love the opportunity to to uh engage uh the veterans and interview them because they add such a richer dimension to it, you know, getting these personal stories down on paper. And I know that they have their liabilities. I know that, you know, I, I know that as as the years go by and as uh you know and they get more and more removed from the immediacy of the situation that they were in. I know that I know that memory can and often does. You know, it will it will eventually distort and rearrange the facts of what happened. And it, it it's not that they're trying to deliberately deceive anyone. It's just you know, memory is what it is, and you know, sometimes you just can't remember things mm. as sharply or as coherently thirty years after the fact. Whereas you know. You could recall it with a lot more clarity and a lot more uh, a lot more coherence if, if you're just uh, if you're just a day removed. But getting those stories down and getting all of the veterans to tell me what happened and matching up the sequences of their events and just getting that personal dimension it makes for such a richer historical experience, I think, than you know reading something out of what I can only call a colloquial textbook. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's your timeline. This and this happened, but you have no emotion of understanding of what war is. You know, I, I love right. that you tell the people's stories. And yeah, yeah, you know, people's memory fades. I mean, and it happens at all ages, quite frankly. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. how much, you know, like Nancy always says, my file cabinet's full. I'm going to have to dump something out of the file cabinet to bring more memories in, you know, and, and remember yeah. them. And, and, you know, the reality is I think we always remember what our soul story is if that makes sense like you it may not Mm -hmm. be the exact year but who really cares i mean i suppose it's important but that stuff is documented but it's about the story of how you felt and what what was it i mean i mean even just talking about those rodents here you are in these tunnels and like next thing you know a rodent jumps on your i I mean come on like that i we're all freaked out by that you know what i mean it's um those kind of things get you the the things in the middle of the night. But if you're at war and you're supposed to be sneaking around and doing things, it's like, it's crazy. And so you, your memory may be focused on that moment more than on this date. We invaded this. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. we did this, but all I could think about that rat was going to bite my toe or something crazy like that, you know, right. but that's the reality, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. that's the thing about actually having that communication and, 
and getting those stories so people understand what war is about and, and what soldiers, men and women, have gone through over the years. And um, Vietnam is just, it's a wild war and so much controversy of people arguing over it and fighting over it and um, not being, you know, nice to the soldiers coming home from Vietnam, uh, as we talked about yeah. a couple of shows ago. And, you know, Nancy gets all riled up. <laughs> you know, she's, she's not allowed on the Vietnam shows anymore. <laughs> she gets she gets busy, and she, for rightly so. Um, you know, she yeah. was in high school when this was going on, and and also lost a lot of friends. Um, so it's very difficult to think when you lose people, especially at a young age, and um, you're grappling with understanding who you are at that age. Yet you're losing friends in a war that you don't understand, and everybody's. You know, not everybody, but your half your town is, you know, spitting at them. That's not an easy thing to talk about. Uh, not nicely, anyway. Um, it's not. So I, I'm really, you know, Nancy and I both are grateful that you are shining a light on this. Because I think we're we're a little slow on the uptake on Vietnam. Uh, understanding that just, you know, we're now starting to really see more about World War II, World War One, but and I still think we're slow on World War One. We barely have that any history out there, you know, stories for us to understand. I just think the spotlight should be a little bit more. But um, and you've done a great job on World War Two, and but um, Vietnam, I think those veterans, you know, we're at the baby boomer age now, and that generation needs to be honored as well. Do you feel that writing that? Did you feel pretty propelled, like to do any more stories on Vietnam? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I sure do. You know, I think that, uh, I, I think that it's, I think that it's good these days that our Vietnam veterans are starting to get the recognition that they deserve. And, you know, I mean, I really credit that with, uh, the good strides that have happened over the past 20 years in no small part, you know, because of what Hal Moore and, uh, and Joe Galloway did with their book. But, uh, you know, I really want to keep that momentum going forward. I want to, uh, you know, I want to get more Vietnam stories down on paper, uh, especially since we're at a critical point in time when I think that, you know, uh, our uh, our Vietnam veterans are, you know, rapidly approaching the age that our World War II veterans were at when we started saying, okay, well, these guys are going to die off soon. And, and, uh, you know, we need to preserve the legacy of their stories, um, you know, because as of right now, I mean, the youngest of the Vietnam veterans is right at 70 years old. And it's not mm. going to be too long before these guys start to pass away in record numbers. A lot of them, you know, the ones that haven't uh, that haven't passed away already due to the number of health issues with like Agent Orange or, um, you know, any number of the uh, uh, any number of the. Uh, um, uh, any number of the chemicals that were fired off over there, you know, they, uh, they need to be honored for their service and they need to know that, uh, you know, the, uh, the hostility that they met coming back, that that's not going to be the lasting legacy when, when, when they finally leave this life, you know? Mm. No, it's true. It's true. I'm, I'm glad we have the memorials too, though. But I want yeah. things for those who are here now, you know, so that right. they aren't forgotten. Like, you know, it's like, don't wait for the artist to die to buy the painting. <laughs> you know I mean? right. 
yeah, or the book, by the way. <laughs> get get the book now, you know, but it, it's a true thing. It's um I, I wanna also bring up because we're talking about Vietnam, uh Henry Kissinger, who uh recently yeah. passed away. And you know, I really, you know, I, I mean I, I didn't grow up here, but I did not know how complex his story is. It's like a complicated relationship, you know. People love and hate him <laughs> for reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when the day he passed on Facebook, I'm like, holy cow, like, you know, people were like, it was like he was being spat on by a lot of people. And some people are like, you know, rest in peace. He did this. He did that. So, like, what the heck did he do? <laughs> like, and Nancy even was like, was he still alive? I mean, he was like, what? He was about 100 when he died or something. Like, he was up there. Yeah. You know, that was Norman Lear. It was like a 102. Like, Norman Lear passing away was bad, though. That that sucked. That Norman Lear... Talk, well, I mean, that goes and ties into Vietnam history. He covered that, like, in All in the Family. Um, he, he really shared what the country was doing, and I don't think you can get away with anything that Norman Lear did then, now. But um, he did show all sides, I think, and that was an, an important piece of American pop culture history you know what he did but right. um i remember him and meathead fighting and on all in the family about vietnam <laughs> about isn't that it yeah you know it's a yeah when you think back now and we have to go back and look at all in the family that that there's a way to start off your new year um but kissinger that was interesting to see and i was like nancy henry kissinger's dead and she's like is he still alive i'm like well no he just died but you know what i mean and then i said wow people are calling him like a you know a killer and a murderer and i'm like she's like what and war criminal war criminal so there's the watergate stuff but the war criminal can we talk about what was going on there why people are calling him a war criminal yeah and it's kind of ironic that People would call him that because he actually came over here to the U.S. as a way to escape war criminals. And I think a lot of people forget that Henry Kissinger was born in Germany. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was born in Germany after World War One, and he came over here to the U.S. in the late 30s as a Jewish refugee, and he was on the run from Nazi Germany. And you know, he wasn't here, but just a few years before. He enlisted in the army, and uh, yeah, he went over to uh, to uh, to fight the the very people that he had escaped from. You know, uh, he also he he uh, said that one of the things that he was proudest of in his life was uh, was um, was serving in the army, and uh, you know, going over to uh, you know going over to fight in Europe, where he could. Not only uh, he could not only be a translator, but you know, help uh, help some of his former countrymen get back on their feet. You know, he said that uh, he said that his experience in the army really made him feel like an American, and you know, he really wanted to uh, to pay that forward. You know, give his service to the uh, to to the country that uh, that granted him freedom, and. Yeah, how he paid that forward was he said, well, you know, I think uh, probably the best thing that I could do is get involved in government and you know get involved in uh, also get involved in politics. Now, um, if we fast forward to the late fifties, you know, he's uh, you know he's working for um, you know, he's uh, he's starting to get involved in some of these uh, special studies, you know, 
under the Rockefeller Foundation, and uh, you know he's also doing uh, also doing work for various think tanks like the Rand Corporation. You know he's in the uh, he's in the uh, Office of uh, Operations Research, also in the also in the Department of State, and uh, you know he um, he was also a uh, he was also a um, big admirer and a big contributor to the Rockefeller family. And, uh, you know, he, uh, I think a lot of people forget that he worked on the, uh, he worked on the presidential campaigns for Nelson Rockefeller. And he was, uh, he was active, you know, through, uh, yeah, he was active in Republican politics all throughout the sixties. And when, when Richard Nixon ends up getting the win, you know, that's when he, uh, that's when he, comes in and he uh, serves first as a national security advisor and then as secretary of state under president Nixon. Now for him being a killer and being a murderer, well, it's just not that cut and dry because there were a lot of things that he did that can really be described as uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, um, there, there's an official term for it. Some of the listeners out there might know it. It's called real politique. And oddly enough, that is a German way of political thinking, and it's basically the uh, it's it's an approach in politics that is that is based on circumstances, and it's also based on well whatever the situation is at the time. It's not tied to any particular ideology. It's not uh, it's not really even tied to any ethical or moral premises. It's basically just whatever the exigencies of the day dictate that you do, that's what you have to do. It's the, uh, I think it's the lowest common denominator, pragmatism or realistic policies that you can follow at any one time. And you see this bared out in a lot of the uh, approaches that he took to supporting a lot of these third world dictatorial regimes that ended up being on the wrong side of the human rights equation. Well, if we if we just take a look at it, and we take a look at some of the things that uh, Henry Kissinger was at least responsible for recommending, and uh, you know responsible for uh, you know responsible for helping orchestrate, you see that uh, there are some good things that he accomplished, but uh, some very questionable things as well, and things that uh, people have harped on him about, but at the same time. Yeah, the way he was looking at it was okay. I have to do what's what I think is pragmatically the best solution for us on our end of the equation. And even if that means making a deal with the devil, you know, he he has to. You know, he he operates from the framework of sometimes I have to make a deal with the devil in order to do the Lord's work. Right. And uh, and and that's why. And that's um, one of the things that. Uh, that's one of the things that spurned him on to do a lot of the policies that uh, he ended up pursuing or that he ended up recommending. He was responsible for the for the policy of detente, the Soviet Union, and a lot of people harped on him about that in his later years. And you know, saying, "Okay, well, you basically were just turning a blind eye to all of the human rights abuses that were happening in the USSR." But the way he looked at it was, "Okay, well." You know, we just came out of a terrible war in Vietnam. You know, we have fallen behind in the arms race. The Soviet Union 
uh, ground weapon systems have jumped at least half a generation ahead of ours. Detente is really the only thing that we have as an option at this point. Let's uh, let's adopt the live and let live strategy. Let's do something that's more along the lines of glorified containment. We'll uh, try to uh, talk about some arms reductions on either side, but let's just uh, let's just let them keep doing what they're doing, and we're, we'll keep doing what are doing, and it will continue to be a bipolar world at least for the foreseeable future and he said you know but what we can do while we're letting the soviets do what they do we can take advantage of the sino-soviet split and we can we can open up relations with china because uh you know china had been closed off from us for a long time we didn't even have diplomatic uh, we didn't have diplomatic relations with them for quite a while and uh, then, then it was during Nixon's first term that we uh, that we were able to normalize relations with uh, with with Red China, and we saw that really as a strategic foil against the Soviets. They said, "Okay, well, uh, the uh, communists in Eastern Europe are um, are uh, nobody's friend on the world stage, but if we can make a if we can make a tenuous alliance, at least a frenemy alliance with." the other biggest, baddest kid on the block, well, you know, hey, uh, normalizing relations with China will uh, make the Soviets think twice about, you know, ever trying to escape the bounds of detente. And, and not only that, you know, he said, okay, well, if we, can, uh, if we can diffuse the situation in the Middle East with the Yom Kippur War, you know, we'll engage in wow. some shuttle diplomacy there to, you know, try to send some envoys back and forth to... Uh, to, to diffuse the situation as best we can because we don't want that to become another um, hot battlefront in this ongoing Cold War. And, uh, and not only that, let me, uh, let, me see if I can, let me see if I can negotiate some lasting peace uh, with North Vietnam while we're at it because uh, a lot of people forget that the Paris Peace Accords, that, you know, that diplomatic mm-hmm. front that ended the Vietnam War, that was actually mm-hmm. Henry Kissinger's doing. And that was right. actually how he got the Nobel Peace Prize. The America's yeah. the, the most admired man in America for that, right? That that's what he was known yeah. as. Yeah, and and uh, you know, but at the same time, he uh, he um, he was also uh, he was also associated with the escalating bombing in uh, Cambodia, and uh, you know the involvement in uh, the involvement in that coup down in Chile back in seventy three. And uh, also for supporting uh, the Argentinian mm. m- military dictatorship, you know, and uh, it's uh, and, and sturdy war there back in the uh, back in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, yeah, so he has a he has a mixed record. On the one hand, you can point to some things that he did that had some good downstream effects, but at the same time. You know he's uh, he's making these deals with these third world dictators, and you know he's uh, aligning U.S. interests and U.S. support to people who, uh, you know, probably have given the chance would want to do us harm, and mm-hmm. you know making alliances with uh, people who you know stand diametrically opposed to all the American values that we hold in, in near and dear here at home. It's wild, man. I mean, that's a legacy, huh? I mean, that's a complicated, complex story of what this man's life was. And when you think about it, 
you know, when you, when you flee a country and you, you know what was going on for the Jewish people that in Germany and he's one and came over here. I wonder how much of that spurred his decision making throughout his life, you know, knowing how bad things can be. And so there's kind of a, you know, there's, yeah, I, I think that this, that's got to have affected a lot of what he did, don't you think? Coming from oh, yeah. Germany. I really do yeah, think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think just given what he was escaping and in light of uh, what he was running from in Germany, you know, he uh, he had seen the worst of it and he's like, okay, well, yeah, and, and I think to an extent that was probably... I think Hitler and the Nazis were probably the data point for which he based a lot of his decisions off of because all things considered, he probably looked at the likes of Allende in Chile and, uh, and, and the military government down in Argentina and probably said to himself, well, they're not the nicest people on the block, but at least they're not as bad as Hitler. And I had, you know, firsthand experience, you know, dealing with, you know, seeing what that was like and, you know, seeing all of the uh, human abuse and all of the human human rights abuse has gone to the extreme. Well, yeah. And when that goes to extreme, then you're just like, whack them out before it gets yeah. worse. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, nipping in the bud, kill it off now before the cancer spreads kind of thing. Right. You know, um, it's kind of it. It's understandable and, and yet not. And, you know, it, it, it's complicated. <laughs> it's just complicated. It's one of those things, you know. Um, but it's you, you can get an understanding of who he is when you think back of where he comes over. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, war hasn't stopped. I don't think there hasn't been a real break, has there, in this country no. of going to war? Not really, you know. And um, I know my... Um, Mom's cousin, Mike, he, he lucked out during Vietnam. They stationed him in Germany and didn't have anything to do. He, he just said, I drank a lot of beer and I'm going, man, you lucked out, <laughs> you know, and then here's this whole other side, you know, so some people really lucked out and the others didn't, you know, it's, um, God, you got to think, you know, then think about like, you know, with the Berlin Wall. David Hasselhoff wants to take claim to knocking down the Berlin Wall. Remember that? I don't know. Well, you're too young for that. But, it, you know, what? what is it with David Hasselhoff? Sorry, it's got nothing to do with this this show at all, but it's just funny thinking well, back. Well, the Germans love him. I know, man. It's where his biggest albums. Anyway, um, I, I, I really shouldn't laugh because I loved Knight Rider as a kid. I, I stayed up for that. Oh, I, yeah, I would. Too. Knight Rider was cool, man. Come on. And now we have cars similar to that. Isn't it wild how this stuff comes true mm-hmm. a, a, after a while? Um, Mike, it is 2024. What are you looking forward to this year in publishing books? I know more is coming, right? Yes, ma'am. Yay. Uh, tell, so, tell. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, so let's see. The, um, the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to, well, actually, there are quite a few of them. Um, so there are, uh, there are, at least two books that are going to be in the hopper for uh, 2024, one cool. being Red Bandit and the other being Sarajevo by Dawn. Ooh. And 
And yeah, both of those are uh, both of those I think are going to be crowd pleasers. At least I hope so. Two new books. So that would be twenty-seven books. Twenty-eight. Where are we? I can't keep up. Twenty-eight. You know yeah. Yeah, it'll be twenty-eight. <laughs> wow. What's it like feeling being twenty-eight? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> can't remember. Well, that is awesome, man. Uh, we can't wait. Next next month, Mike will be back on. You know, he's here every first Monday. And we're going to be uh, looking at black history. Uh, Tuskegee Airmen, we get to finally talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, right? We, you know, and mm -hmm. Buffalo Soldier history. We get to talk about Buffalo Soldier history too, right? Um, yeah. You know, the Tuskegee Airmen story are just, uh, both of them. I just, it's, it's something that um, has been dear to my heart that I also feel like we need to tell more you know, there's just so much. Do you find that as a military historian, as a historian, a teacher, and a writer, a speaker, do you feel like we're we're not anywhere close to actually telling all the stories out there? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that there are so many other stories out there that can be told, so many other stories that need to be told. It's just, uh, it really is just a matter of... of um, yeah. Doing it. ...of finding... Yeah, it's really just a matter of really finding the time and, uh, you know, just finding the uh, space to get them all on paper, really. Mm. And telling it well. I mean, that's what you do. I just, I, I appreciate it because, you know, over the years, I, I know I've said this on shows, you know, before with you, but it's true. Um, I had no idea that I'd get into military history so much. And I think it's because you come from the people's perspective, the people who fought and then the people, the families. Mm -hmm connected you know um it's human interest stories even though it's battle and yeah. strategy and and at the same time i never thought i'd get into battle strategy idea like that's like you're like ooh, that's badass over there like you know what i mean and you have to do mm -hmm. that you have to strategize in life right it's still the same thing yeah. we have to strategize what we're doing you know um it's like if you're going to work driving to work maybe you don't want to drive that side of town you know what i mean you don't want to give, you know what I mean? It's like you have to look at the safety of your family every day. And that's really it, you know? So um, I think there's a lot of life lessons in what you do. So we appreciate that. And everyone keep up with Mike at MikeGuardia.com. Get his books on Amazon, all whatever you buy books, bookshop.org. Um, and if he's not in your local bookstore, I'd say go knocking on your bookstore's door. And some of the museums out there, just saying. Like, you know, we can you believe we actually did go to the Hal Moore Museum in, in Bardstown, Kentucky? Remember that day? Nancy and I were calling you on yeah. the freeway. Mike, mm -hmm. Mike, I think, look, he's got his own highway. <laughs> Hal Moore has a highway. <laughs> it's his own parkway. And then we got to see his house. Like, it was just, like, unexpected. Nancy's like, call Mike. Call Mike. We're here. And it was awesome to to just, it was just a surprise because we didn't even know we were going to be there that day. And it was like, wow, this is, this is super cool. So, um, it's just a special thing, but everyone, Mike's latest book, Mike Guardia's latest book is fire in the hole tales of combat with the first engineer battalion in Vietnam. So go get it. Thank you so much, Mike and happy new year again. Okay. Well, thank you, Lisa and happy new year. And, uh, yeah, always a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday Show, featuring Mike Guardia, award-winning author and historian. Keep up with Mike and his books at mikeguardia.com. Follow us at bigblendradio.com.